Let's ask God's blessing. Father, we thank you for being God of this world. In fact, everywhere we look, whatever we look at, Lord, you own it. Nothing truly is owned by us, but you own it all, Lord. And we give back to you, Lord, out of hearts full of worship to you, knowing that, uh, Lord, our financial resources go toward the work of the kingdom, the work of mission. Uh, Father, we do this joyfully, not under compulsion. You love joyful givers. And we thank you, Lord, for all at Snowden who are faithful in their giving. Lord God, add blessing to them. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. On screen is a photo of my grandfather. Yes, Harold Evans Staples. He died when I was only three years old in 1973. Harold had been a soldier in the 27th Battalion of the Canadian Infantry in World War I, the Great War. He saw combat in several significant battles, among them being uh, the Battle of Hill 70, but also the Battle of Passchendaele which took place in Belgium in late October and early November of 1917. One of the things that the Battle of Passchendaele was known for is its mud. Waist-deep mud, crater holes that were full of cold water, many of which were littered with the decaying bodies of both soldiers and horses. And soldiers like my grandfather had to navigate through all of that vile mud and dysentery-infected water, even as they were advancing and being fired upon by German soldiers. And if you look closely at that photo on the screen, you can see several soldiers positioned there in the mud of Passchendaele. Well, on November 6 of 1917, the same month when this picture on screen was taken, my grandfather found himself mired in that terrible mud, fighting for his life and fighting for the lives of his buddies, when suddenly a shell exploded very near him, and it sent shards of hot metal into his flesh, It killed some of his friends. It knocked down a tree that proceeded to fall on my grandfather's ankle, breaking his ankle. But blessedly, amazingly, stretcher bearers were able to bravely reach my grandfather and take him off the battlefield, after which he would spend several months in hospitals uh, in the UK. If not for those stretcher bearers that day, saving my grandfather's life, my mother would not have been born, and I would not be standing here today. And so this morning, I praise God for those brave and able stretcher bearers, whoever they were, and I'll never know who they were. Well, I wanted to begin this way, thinking about mud (laughs) and deliverance from mud, Because those same things are prominent at the beginning of our psalm today, which is Psalm 40. If you have a Bible, you can turn there. David found himself mired in mud. 
So in verse 2 of our psalm, we'll come back to verse 1 in a minute, but in verse 2, David talks there about being situated in the pit of destruction, the miry bog. The pit of destruction, the miry bog. Now, indeed, David may be speaking metaphorically here, right? It may not have been an actual mud pit that he found himself in, a literal mud pit, like my grandfather's situation at Passchendaele. But whatever the case, David's words certainly suggest a helpless situation. A helpless situation. Being bogged down or stuck in something. It was hopeless to get out of this by his own power. The pit of destruction, the miry bog. David desperately needed a stretcher bearer to come along, someone who would come along and extract him out of this helpless situation. And maybe this morning, my friend, that's you. Maybe you've come into the building today waist-deep in mud, in some dangerous, hopeless situation in which you feel helpless. Well, let's see what happens here, what happened with David. Let's now read verses 1 and 2 taken together. David says, I waited patiently for Yahweh, for the Lord. He inclined to me and heard my cry. He drew me up from the pit of destruction out of the miry bog and set my feet upon a rock, making my steps secure. Now let's bring a couple questions to the text here this morning. First question is this, what are David's actions? in these two verses. David's actions, as far as I can tell, are really three. First, to be helplessly stuck in the mud. (laughs) Secondly, to wait patiently for the Lord. And third, to cry out. David is unable to get himself out of this untoward situation. So, David does what? He waits patiently for the Lord. We're not a very patient society, are we? He waits patiently for the Lord. He cries out to the Lord. David directs his focus where? To the Lord. He prays to the Lord. He seeks the Lord persistently and expectantly and with endurance. My friend, if you are in a helpless situation this morning, if you are in some sort of dire situation, whether of your own making, or not, take your cue from this verse inspired in the Holy Scriptures, wait patiently for the Lord, and be persistent in that, and be expectant in that. Amen? Well, to our second question then, what are God's actions in these two verses? Notice that God does a whole lot more here than helpless David does, doesn't he? Notice all the actions that are associated with the Lord. The Lord inclines or he bends down mercifully, graciously, benevolently, bends down toward David. He hears the cry of David. He draws 
David up from David's helplessness. And God sets, notice all the verbs, sets David's feet securely on solid ground, making David's steps secure. This is, friends, the divine stretcher bearer in action, extracting David, coming to the aid of David, reestablishing David. God does a whole lot for David here, which then causes David to do what? To praise God in robust fashion. Just as God's mighty deliverances, have you, has he delivered you from something, his mighty deliverances in our lives should cause us to praise him from the bottom of our hearts. Thank you, Lord, for what you did for me. You alone are worthy to be praised. Verse three, David gets into the praise. He put a new song, he's singing now, a new song in my mouth, a song of what? Praise to our God. Now, something interesting just happened in our psalm. Did you notice it? Did you notice how the pronouns in verses one and two were first-person pronouns, right? I, me, my, as David was talking about his own experience. And now, suddenly, in verse 3, we get the word our. Notice that at the end of the verse. Praise to our God. So what's David doing here? He's drawing in the congregation. He's drawing us in to the praise of our God for the deliverances that God has worked for us. He continues, many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. Yes, indeed. As we are praising God and exulting publicly in the mercy and the power and the grace of God, as we are telling of the deliverance that he has worked for us, there is going to be a spillover effect Yes, a spillover effect, which is that many in the sound of our praising voice will see and fear and put their trust in Yahweh, God of Israel, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. We will have a whole congregation of people praising. I wonder if you see, having read these verses, the design of God. The design of God in these verses, the, the design goes like this. A human being finds himself, herself, in a bad situation. God delivers that person from that situation. That person then publicly praises God in some context or context for the deliverance, and that praise then causes other people to be edified and to join in the praise, to come to faith in God. Beautiful. Church, are we a praising church Monday through Saturday and Sunday? We get the benefit, God gets the glory. Let's keep going now. Verse 4, David now gives this little beatitude. Notice, blessed is the man who makes the Lord his trust, who does not turn to the proud, to those who go astray after a lie. Now, David himself, David himself was blessed since David had made Yahweh 
the Lord, his trust, when he waited patiently for the Lord to rescue him from the mud, right? God accepted that as worship and praise. He made the Lord his trust. David is blessed. And then verse 5, you have multiplied, O Lord my God, your wondrous deeds and your thoughts toward us. No one can compare with you. Who can compare with the Lord? No one can compare with you. I will do what? Proclaim and tell of them. Yet they are more than can be told. So David, notice in this verse, he stands amazed here at the wonders wrought by God and the care provided by God to feeble human beings like me and you. And David commits here to shout out God's incomparable greatness to the world. David is not going to be silent about the greatness of the Lord. Oh, how the world needs people praising God publicly, boldly, courageously about his greatness. Verse 6, notice verse 6 now. In sacrifice and offering you have not delighted, but you have given me an open ear. Burnt offering and sin offering you have not required. Now just as a reminder here, what launched this psalm was the picture of God delivering David out of the miry bog in the pit, which in turn launched David into the praise of God. Verse 6 is still in the context of David offering praise in prayer to his delivering God. And perhaps the key to understanding this verse is that little phrase there, you have given me an open ear. Literally, in the original Hebrew text, this is about God digging digging an ear for David. What does it mean for God to dig an ear for a human being? Well, God digs ears for human beings like you and I. God creates and forms human ears, not just so that we can listen to the word of God, but so that we will obey that word, be doers of that word. Hearing the Lord, in the Hebrew conception of things under which David is writing, hearing the Lord is connected organically and directly to doing what the Lord says. Being obedient to him. Hearing and doing. Listening and obeying what God commands. Now, a step further in our meditation on verse 6, when David speaks here of four different forms of sacrifice, which again in the Hebrew text, there are four separate different forms of sacrifice that are mentioned here. What he's doing is he's effectively covering the gamut of the sacrificial system in Israel. In other words, David, still full of praise to his God, is saying this, Lord, you don't require the entire sacrificial system as your first choice. 
as your first choice. What you desire, Lord, as your first choice for human beings is that they hear and obey your word. That they have open ears. Obedience from us is your first choice, Lord. Animal sacrifices are necessary in a secondary sense, David speaking from his Old Testament perspective, in a secondary sense, when we fail to obey what you have commanded so that we might be forgiven for our disobedience. But your first choice, Lord, is to have worshipers acting in accordance with the ears that you have dug for them. You want hearts and lives acting in obedience and in submission to you, Lord. That is your first choice. Obedience first, sacrifice second, and in fact, interestingly, our very lives living in thankful obedience to the Lord, become, don't they, the living sacrifices that he desires. If we read Romans 12. And so friends, it's wise to get into the habit, each of us should ask ourselves repeatedly throughout each and every one of our days, how am I obeying the Lord right now? In this situation in which I find myself in. Am am I obeying what I hear in his word? Am I being a doer of his word in my daily life out of joyful praise and out of thanksgiving for the deliverance that he has worked for me by the sacrifice of his son? And do I remain conscious that to obey his word by the Spirit's power, that is the way to flourish as a human being? Living in obedience to what God has commanded by the power of the Spirit is the way to flourish as a human being. You know, friends, it's so easy for us to get lulled to sleep by the many, many narcotic influences of our culture. Yes? And to begin to neglect, to forget, the word of God, and being doers of the word and being obedient to the word. Well, let's go forward then into verses seven and eight now. Then I said, David's still speaking here, then I said, behold. Behold in the Hebrew is like, kind of like a camera that zooms in, right? Zoom in. Behold, I have come. In the scroll of the book, it is written of me, I delight to do your will, O my God, your law is within my heart. David says here, behold, I have come, the king of Israel from the tribe of Judah prophesied way back in the book of Genesis had now come upon the scene and his name was David. Behold, I have come. And the scroll of the book that David mentions here probably is a reference to Deuteronomy chapter 17 where the king of Israel is commanded to do the will, to do the will of the Lord and to immerse himself and saturate himself in the law of God. 
David had now come upon the scene in Israel as the king from Judah whose desire was to do God's will, but to do God's will means to know God's will, which none of us will ever know unless we are immersed in Scripture, correct? David says, your Torah, your law is within my heart and I will live it out. God, as I said to somebody a few days ago, has definite contours. God has a shape. God has uh, plans for us, commands for us that are contoured and have shape, and they're in Scripture. His character is described in Scripture. We need to be in the Scriptures, living out and doing the Word of God. Verse 9, I have told the glad news. It's a gospel word. The glad news of deliverance in the great congregation. That is, I have heralded, I have preached, I have published forth the good news of your deliverance, Lord. I have publicly preached your gospel. I have not restrained my lips, as you know, O Lord. I have refused to keep quiet concerning your deliverance and what you have worked for me, your mercy and your greatness. And he continues in verse 10, I have not hidden your deliverance within my heart. I have spoken of your faithfulness and your salvation. I have not concealed your hesed, your steadfast love, and your faithfulness from the great congregation. David, here we get the picture of somebody who's bold, who's forthright, who's public about God's delivering power about God's hesed love, God's faithfulness. He's fearless about proclaiming it all. He's excited about proclaiming it. David had been sharing it. He had been trumpeting it. He had been announcing it far and wide. Why? Because God had taken a helpless David and delivered David from the waist-deep mud and set David's feet on solid Ground. And David now is not going to hold back in spreading the news of that great deliverance. So really, these verses, I think David encourages us, church, in our evangelism, correct? Verses 11 and 12. As for you, O Lord, you will not restrain your mercy from me, your hesed, your steadfast love, your faithfulness will ever preserve me for evils, listen to this, Evils have encompassed me beyond number. My iniquities have overtaken me, and I cannot see. They are more than the hairs of my head. My heart fails me. It's interesting in verse 12, suddenly we go back to a picture of David in trouble. And there's a hint in verse 12 about the reason for the trouble. Notice. He says, in verse 12, my iniquities have overtaken me. Now, we're, we're not given precise details about David's actual situation of trouble, what the context was, the time period, the individuals that may have been involved. But now verse 12 give, gives us this indication that David's trouble had been brought on by his own wrongdoings in this case. My iniquities have overtaken me. And David says here, notice, in connection with that, I cannot see. 
That is, David's vision in his life was blurred. His perception was skewed, connected to his own wrongdoings. David could not think clearly. And then referring again to his iniquities, to his sins, David says, with great self-awareness, he says, they are more than the hairs of my head. My heart fails me. And so the general picture, friends, is that David here is at the end of his tether. He's at the end of his tether. He's in a bad situation brought on, in this case, by his own sins. And the trouble and the sins were kind of like wrapped in knots around him, like the seaweed had been wrapped around Jonah as Jonah sank to the bottom of the sea. David was sinking fast. And what do you do when you're sinking fast, when you're at the end of your rope, when, when all your plans to help yourself have failed. What do you do? You cry out to the Lord. Verses 13 through 15, now David prays. Even as David is conscious of his own sin, he prays. And you can just hear his heart here. Be pleased, O Lord, to deliver me. Oh Lord, make haste to help me. Help me. Deliver me. Let those be put to shame and disappointed altogether who seek to snatch away my life. Let those be turned back and brought to dishonor who delight in my hurt. Let those be appalled because of their shame who say to me, Aha! Aha! What's David praying for here in general terms? He's praying that a great big misfire would happen in the plans of his enemies. David, as God's chosen king, we have to remember he's God's chosen king in Israel. David is aware that these enemies are causing the destabilization of God's rule on earth. And so David prays that God would act, that God would put these people to shame even as their evil plans fail. And again, we notice David is not saying, I am going to take revenge, Lord. He's praying to the Lord, Lord, vengeance is yours. Act in this situation on behalf of your chosen king. Verse 16, but may all who seek you do what? Are you seeking the Lord today? May all who seek the Lord rejoice and be glad in you. May those who love your salvation say continuously what? Great is the Lord. To quote Derek Kidner, David's overriding concern in this psalm is that people magnify the Lord. That's his concern, that people rejoice in the Lord, be glad in the Lord, love his salvation, that people won't be able to stop saying in all of their situations, great is the Lord. Who compares with him, friends? Great is the Lord. Now I wonder 
in the hours after my grandfather had been pulled from the mud of Passchendaele, in the hours after that piece of timber was taken off of his legs, stretcher bearers coming and safely evacuating him from the battlefield to the field hospital, I wonder how my grandfather expressed his thanksgiving. Did he try to seek out the stretcher bearers, perhaps, and give them his personal thanks? Did he lay on his cot, still in great physical pain, psychological trauma, and pray his thanksgiving to God? My grandfather had been delivered from a situation that surely would have meant his death if not for God's help. How incredibly thankful he must have been that day for that deliverance. How glad, Christians, I want you to think about this, how glad must we be for the Lord's salvation? Believer in Jesus, he has saved you from a far worse situation than the mud of Passchendaele. Do you know that? By the blood of his son shed on the cross, he saved you, saved me, believer in Jesus, from an eternity in hell. Yes, I know it's an unpopular subject today. He saved us from an eternity in hell. He's done for us what we were helpless to do for ourselves. He's taken us out of the cosmic, miry bog and pit of destruction and set our feet on solid ground, the solid ground of the crucified and resurrected Jesus Christ. And so I'm praying, church, for an increase this very week in our rejoicing in him, yes? In our rejoicing in him, in our being glad in him, in our thanksgiving to him, in our love for the salvation that he has given us. May you say repeatedly this week, tomorrow and Tuesday and Wednesday, great is the Lord. May I be saying, great is the Lord, as the general anesthetic puts me under this Wednesday. He is worthy of our zealous praise, isn't he, in all situations and at all times. Well, let's go to our final verse now, verse 17. David says, <clears throat> I don't know about others, Lord, <laughs> but as for me, I am poor and needy. Wow, great self-awareness again. I am poor and needy, but the Lord takes thought for me. The Lord takes thought for me. See, the thoughts of David's enemies had been obsessed with what? Hurting David, harming David, killing David. But the thought of God for David was for his well-being. And so his enemies never stood a chance. If the Lord's thought for you is your prospering and your well-being, your enemies don't stand a chance. God's thinking on David's behalf is simply going to do what? Outmaneuver, outwit, outthink, outperform the thoughts of David's enemies. It's God. There would be no contest. David ends the psalm by saying, you are my help. Do you know the Lord that way? You are my help and my deliverer. Do not delay, oh my God. And the psalm ends there. Now, 
One of the things that we're learning to do here at Snowden is to read the Bible as a whole, right? To understand that the 66 books that make up our Bible are a diverse yet profoundly unified whole. And that we must always read individual passages in light of the whole. And so our reading of Psalm 40 is going to be incomplete unless we read it in the light of Hebrews chapter 10. You can turn there if you like. To quote Christopher Ashe, Hebrews 10 verses 5 through 10 explicitly teach us, he says, that these words of Psalm 40 are finally spoken and fulfilled not by David, but by Jesus as he goes obediently to the cross. And so very quickly, let's, let's watch what happens in Hebrews 10. The chapter begins with a discussion of sacrifice. So how the Old Testament sacrifices, though necessary for a season in God's design, they, they, they were necessary but ultimately insufficient as the solution to the problem of sin. And then at verse 5, the writer of Hebrews, notice carefully what he says. He says, consequently, after talking about the insufficiency of the Old Testament sacrificial system, consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, and then the writer of Hebrews lays out a lengthy quote from our psalm. From Psalm 40, verses 6 through 8, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body have you prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. Now friends, isn't this gloriously staggering. The New Testament writer of Hebrews has no problem saying that Christ is the speaker of Old Testament Psalm 40. Christ is. And indeed, it's true that Christ is the speaker of the psalm, isn't it? I mean, let's face it, could David who had an adulterous affair with Bathsheba, David, who murdered Uriah, David, who had full intentions that day to go ahead and slaughter Nabal, if not for Abigail, David, who sinfully took the census, David, who was a train wreck of a father, could David say to God with a straight face and a pure and undivided heart, I have come to do your will, O God? No. There's only one who can say with a straight face and an absolutely pure, undivided, sinless heart, I have come to do your will, O God. And that is who? The Lord Jesus Christ descended from David. It's only Jesus who can say unflinchingly in John 4.34, my food is what? To do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. 
It's only Jesus who can say with a pure and undivided heart, I do as the Father has commanded me. Wow. John 14:34. Wow. And that unbroken, willing, joyful, perfect obedience of the Son of God to the Father, obedience to the Father, which remember, is the Father's first choice before sacrifice. That obedience of the Son led him to, didn't it? It led him to, the obedience brought him to, the obedience ended up in, what? The sacrifice of himself on the cross. The king in the line of David offered himself in joyful obedience to the Father as the sacrificial offering to pay for what? Not for his own sins, but for the sins of many. Jesus is the once for all perfect sacrifice acceptable to the Father. He is the only one, listen, the only one through whom we can be forgiven our sin against God. And our sin against God is our biggest problem in this life. It's only through him that we can be forgiven of it. It's only through him that we can be set free from an eternal future in torment to life with him in resurrected bodies one day on the new earth, enjoying his pleasures forevermore. And so my question, my friend, no matter who you are, are you saved from the wrath to come? Are you saved from the wrath to come? Have you received the crucified, resurrected, and soon coming Jesus Christ? Are you robed in the righteousness of Jesus through faith, realizing that your own righteousness is like filthy rags? Are you robed in his righteousness through faith? It is the most important question in your life. And our desire here at Snowden Baptist Church is that you can say a resounding yes to that question. I have received him. I am saved. I have eternal life. I am assured in Christ. I am walking with him under his lordship. If you're unsure about this, and you'd like to speak further with one of us after service today, I, I encourage you to just, just approach us. We are welcoming, I think, people. <laughs> uh, and we're willing to point you further to Jesus and his cross. Well, we made the claim that Jesus is the speaker of Psalm 40, but somebody might be asking, okay, well, if that's true, if Christ is the ultimate speaker of the psalm, what do we do with verse 12? where David wrote of his being overtaken by iniquities. Uh, his iniquities were more than the, the uh, number of hairs on his head. It's clear from the New Testament witness, pastor, that Jesus had no sin. He was sinless. So how could it be that he could speak verse 12, sing verse 12 about David's many iniquities, if he's the speaker of the psalm? And the answer to that question for the answer to that question, again, we have to return to the cross where we are told that God made Jesus to be sin. 2 Corinthians 5.21 Him who knew no sin, 
was made to be sin. On the cross, sinless Jesus was bearing the sins of all his people. He was bearing far more sins than the hairs on the hairiest person's head. Isaiah 53, 12 says of Jesus that he bore the sin of many. As Christopher Ashe has put it, Jesus never sinned, but as our mediator, he took personal responsibility for our sins. He bore your sin, believer. He died as your substitute so that you could be forgiven. Amen? Blessed Jesus, mighty Savior, who takes sinners out of the pit of destruction and out of the miry bog. I want to end this with a personal challenge to you. What about you this very week? Ask yourself this very seriously this morning. We don't come to church just to listen to the sermon, gain knowledge, and go home to lunch, right? We need to be doers of the word that we hear. So what about you this very, how will your life this week proclaim the declaration of verse 16? Great is the Lord. If you are forgiven, regenerated, born again, spirit-filled, empowered, baptized believer in Jesus Christ, how will your words and actions this week reflect verse 8? I desire to do your will. I delight to do your will. How will you display the living Jesus this week with whom you enjoy union? How will you live out the vows of your baptism this week in your situation? In, in what way will you fulfill Romans 12 to present your body as a living sacrifice no matter where you go, private and public, to present your body as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. May the Lord God nudge all of us in redemptive directions for his glory, for our great benefit, and for the flourishing and shalom of our neighbor. Amen. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, you have been present with us this morning in our worship time. You have been the center and the focus of our worship time. And Lord God, I pray for each and every one of these dear people that you, by your spirit, uh, would arrest our hearts in redemptive ways for your glory, by your word, and Father, that we would go out this week and be living sacrifices, living for your glory in fresh ways, new ways, as we've been challenged by the word this morning, desiring to do your will and doing it, Lord, with the enablement of the Spirit. It is so blessed that you never command us without also giving us the enablement to carry out your commands. So we pray, Lord, walk with us, speak with us, nudge and direct us this week in Jesus' name. Amen.